from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 2nd. Today, what it's like inside a New York hospital on the front lines of the crisis and how doctors are confronting dark questions about the future. For the past couple of weeks, like most other people around the country and probably around the world, I've been thinking a lot about hospitals. I've been thinking about my friends who work in hospitals, and I text them to tell them that I'm worried about them and that I'm proud of them. And I've been thinking about all the ways that we've collectively upended our lives, essentially for hospitals. We're trying to flatten the curve because we don't want to overwhelm them. But for all the ways that hospitals are at the center of the fear and anxiety that we're all feeling right now, most of us don't really know anything about what it's like to be inside a hospital in the middle of this outbreak, like what's happening in New York. New York City right now is the epicenter of the coronavirus in the United States. It has far and away the most infections, the most deaths. That's reporter Shane Harris. In the past few days, he and I have been talking to doctors inside one of these hospitals facing down this surge of COVID patients. Mount Sinai is an iconic hospital that many people will associate with New York and probably lots of people have heard of, just even in popular culture. There is this kind of main facility that towers over Central Park with this magnificent view there in Manhattan. I mean, it's really kind of Mount Sinai is what we think of as a premier healthcare system in America today. And what we wanted to do was try and understand how a single hospital system was preparing to deal with this wave of patients that they believe were coming for them. Can you say what your name is and um, what you do for work? My name is Michael Chung. My name is Adam Bernheim, and And I'm I'm a cardiothoracic radiologist at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, New York. Basically, they read things like x-rays and CT scans and MRIs of people's hearts and lungs. And three months ago, they were among the first people in the hospital to get an up-close look at this virus that was coming out of China. We started hearing more and more about, you know, this disease that was happening in China maybe in mid-January or so, and the media was picking up on it. This was even before COVID-19 had an official name. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. According to authorities, the number of cases has increased to... We have a unique partnership with hospitals in China, specifically in Chengdu and a few other hospitals around the Wuhan area. So as early as January, when the coronavirus became a significant crisis in China. Tonight, a drastic measure. China ordering a quarantine for the entire city of Wuhan. It kind of dawned on myself and some of my colleagues that we should be studying how this manifests or how it arises in the lungs. And when you were doing that, were you thinking like, oh, we need to be able to know what to look out for? Or was it more of like an academic exercise of like, here's an interesting thing that some of our colleagues on the other side of the planet are, are thinking about. Right. To be honest, it was definitely more of an academic exercise and just 
us all being curious by nature. We just wanted to see what it looked like and whether, you know, it had any unique characteristics on CT and X-ray. We were able to see several hundred CT scans in these patients. And as Dr. Chung and Dr. Bernheim were looking at these scans, they saw something that they'd never seen before. So a normal chest X-ray, if you're just looking at the frontal view of the chest, the lungs will typically be black in color. But in disease, that air is replaced by other things, such as fluid, cells, debris, and pus, and it starts to become gray or even white. But what's unique about COVID-19 is the pattern of how these gray and white areas emerge is actually pretty characteristic. The spots in the lung tend to have a very round shape and be positioned along the edge of the lung, like the outer border of the lung. Today, Public Health Channel in King County is announcing three new presumptive positive cases of novel coronavirus, COVID-19. By February, the first cluster of infections had popped up in the United States. And it was clear that officials didn't really know where or how quickly it was spreading. It was in mid-March, a couple of weeks ago, when we first started seeing patients here in New York. Governor Cuomo just announced the first confirmed case in New York City. Uh, That woman is a healthcare worker. She's 39 years old. New York State confirms a second case. We have a case in Westchester, a 50-year-old gentleman. The number of cases doubling in the New York City area overnight. We have never fought a virus like this with this potential consequence. I think we really saw this surge start to build in earnest in the past week or so. Calls are still coming in at units for one, two, and four. Oh, difficulty breathing. We saw the number of 911 calls equaling the number on 911. Seven units for Connie and Sam for a 62 year old not feeling well. One back of medics, a veteran Rodney. Check out a 60 year old not feeling well. So all of these signals, with I would say within the past week, are sort of now all firing off, and it's clear, okay, it's here. COVID-19 is here in New York now. We had anticipated for some time already from China that this was coming, but I don't think we really realized the full extent and the reality of what that meant. Since then, it's just been exponentially increased. And over the course of mid and now up until late March, it seems that each day there's more than there was the day before, which in turn is more than the day before that. What's been concerning is not only just the cases that are coming through the ED, which are positive, but it's the cases of patients who end up getting admitted. I mean, maybe the elderly people who get admitted and then get put on ventilators. It's really unfortunate to see. I think we've just been seeing in general with patients who go on ventilators, it's not a good thing to go on a ventilator with COVID-19. How has your workload changed? At this point, it's we're, it almost feels like we work in a coronavirus hospital of sorts. Mm. It seems like it's just an endless number of x-rays that are coming in. We're essentially just, you know, tracking the effects of coronavirus in patients and hoping that they get better. If someone were to walk into Mount Sinai Hospital right now, what would they see or what would they see that is different from how things are usually at the hospital? Well, first off, 
I think one might expect to see chaos, and that's not the case. There's no chaos. That's Dr. Charles Powell. He is system chief for the Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine Division at Mount Sinai. Basically, he's one of the people who's managing the hospital's coronavirus response. If you came to the Mount Sinai Hospital a month and a half ago, you would walk into our our atrium lobby, which is a beautiful structure. I am pay designed it. Hmm. Uh, very open air space. It's beautiful. But now, if you walked in there, you would see scaffolding. Scaffolding erected right in the middle of the hallway, right in the middle of the atrium, to provide pods for patients that we will need to be caring for in the next week or so. You walk into our intensive care units, you'll see all the windows are now boarded over so that we can put exhaust pipes into those windows and create an environment where the air can be sucked out of the rooms, creating a negative pressure environment. And so the physical plan has been altered dramatically and quickly to be able to accommodate the number of patients and the number of sick patients who will be coming through our doors. According to Dr. Powell, all the beds at Mount Sinai are already full. And he estimated that about 80% of patients in the hospital are COVID patients. We are over capacity. In fact, some of our ICU rooms are now housing two patients, which is something we never did before, which is something we never thought we would have to do. If you're a patient there right now, like, what does your room look like? And and what does it look like for nurses and doctors who are interacting with you? Well, that's one of the real difficulties of this pandemic. And one of the the tragedies of the pandemic is the main difference between a patient room now and a patient room before is it's just so quiet and absent of visitors. Hmm. We, we have a no-visitor policy, as is every hospital now in the pandemic. And there are a few exceptions, of course. Labor and delivery in, some, in pediatric wards, there, there are exceptions. But by and large, visitors are prohibited. And that's very different from the way it used to be. So typically, before, you walk into a patient's room and their family and their friends, and, they're in the, and, and it's good. It provides a patient that kind of support. But now, they don't have that. And so it's it's a bit more lonely for the patient. Mm. We do everything we can to try and minimize the impact of that. We use iPads and other devices so patients can communicate with the floor to learn about their condition. And also we do everything we can to give them opportunities to communicate with their loved ones via phone or other devices too. So we're trying everything we can to mitigate the impact of a no visitor policy, but it's still different and having the person who you'd like to be with in the room with you. It must be more frightening for the patients and, and more isolating. And then for nurses and, and doctors who are coming in, I mean, are, is it like every time that someone is coming in to check on them or to take their vital signs or whatever, that that person is like fully outfitted in, in kind of protective gear? Yes. Yeah, so when you walk into the hallway and you go to a patient's room, Taped on the door, you'll see a couple of bags, and each bag will have a nurse's name on it or an aide's name on it, and in that bag will be the protective equipment that that nurse or aide will wear when they enter that room. I feel like that must be frightening for the people who are patients just because it's, like, weird that anytime any human being interacts with you, they have to 
put on all this stuff to basically protect themselves from you. Yeah, you have to communicate by looking at their eyes. You can't, you can't see their face. You can't see if they're smiling or not. You just have to listen to what they say and look at their eyes and, and see if those kind of cues are, are sufficient to help in that interaction. It's, it's a very different interaction than it was before. And for Dr. Powell and his colleagues, this explosion in COVID cases has changed their whole approach to who even should be at the hospital. We and all of our colleagues do everything in our power to keep them out of the hospital. We, we've learned that we can manage patients much better than we thought we could out of the hospital. So right now, we are managing scores of patients who may have been in the hospital before they had influenza. We're managing them at home with COVID. Interesting. Yeah, and but we have now technology and skills to be able to monitor patients 24 hours from home. So that that is what we try to do for patients who have mild disease. And the manifestations of mild disease are similar to the flu, like a bad flu. Off, sometimes a little shortness of breath, and a big fever and a headache with some muscle pains and feeling tired. That's what the mild patients feel like. Where it gets more severe is when intractable type of cough and shortness of breath and difficulty breathing. That's the manifestations for when it's getting moderate or severe. Um, I hope this isn't too morbid of, of a question, but, but I actually, I feel like I don't actually know the answer. So when people die from the coronavirus, is it typically because they just can't breathe that the, that the, that the, the breathing becomes too difficult that that like that like that's why um that's why they die so when patients get very sick and they have severe trouble with breathing then comes to the point where they're just not able to breathe well enough on their own to sustain themselves and so that is when we use a ventilator and we transition from just giving them oxygen via a mask or, or a cannula in the nose, that's what we typically do. We transition from that to placing the patient on a ventilator where there's a, a small uh, plastic tube inserted into the main airway and that main that tube in the airway is then connected to a ventilator device. The patients at that point are typically sedated, asleep if you will, and then their breathing is controlled by the machine. Now, the machine is there to support the patient while treatments that are available are used to try and reverse the reasons why the breathing got worse. And what we've learned is that the virus in some patients causes damage, and that damage causes a real exuberant response by the inflammatory in the immune system, and that damages the lungs even more. And the hope is that we'll be successful in, in supporting the patient long enough for that to resolve without something else happening in the meantime. First being when other organ systems fail in addition to the lungs or if a secondary complication or infection occurs, those are the two main reasons that patients may not survive with this disease. What is the the atmosphere at Mount Sinai right now? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, one thing I shared with my wife and my friends is, you know, it's it's tough after a long day of working at a hospital to leave and then to see, you know, staff on the sidewalk just like crying and and hugging each other. Um, mm. uh, I think that's just um, it's heartbreaking to see, and I know like people just need to release in some ways, and um, I, I think that's it's just shows uh, the heart and soul that people are putting into their work. It's really unfathomable. It's uh, very much, it's a very serious um, and tense climate in in many ways not that different than a war zone. Just walking through even the lobby of the hospital, it's very clear that these are trying times. I, I think every radiologist is also thinking, you know, eventually if it gets to that point, I hope to God that it never does, where, you know, it gets so bad where they need radiologists even attendings, radiology attendings to go into the clinical uh, wards. I think we're also gearing up for that too. And I, I mean, I'm ready to help out in any way if it comes to that. But, you know, I, I'll also give credit to our residents who are already being uh, deployed or sent out into the front lines and clinical floors. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm praying for them every day. And uh, I think they're going to do great and they're going to really make an impact. But I just pray for their safety. I think the, the part that's the most frustrating, if I could. Yeah, yeah, please. Is we shouldn't be in this position. This should not have happened. You asked me right at the beginning, and you know, what did I see in the beginning? And what I saw in the beginning was a small outbreak in Wuhan that then spread throughout China. And that was months ago. So all of us, knowing that America is great again, we had the capability to be able to have in place systems, processes to identify when that disease came to the United States and to wall it off by testing and containment. We as a country should have been able to do that. That was our expectation. But that didn't happen. So we blew right past the containment stage. We didn't even have it because we couldn't test or didn't test. And now we're in the mitigation stage. And the prevalence of this infection is so high, it's putting us and we'll put other cities in this position we're in. That is one of the really frustrating aspects of this. This is not me. When, you know, my, my wife, when the weather report comes on and says it's going to snow... I'm always saying, oh, you must go buy some milk and bread and make sure we have it as a joke. Because who cares? It's going to snow if it snows. And most of the time, nothing happens. It's no big deal. So that's the way I usually approach things. You're not someone who's easily upset by things. No. No, not at all. I've never been upset by things. But this is really upsetting. And this is the kind of situation that we never thought we would be in and never thought we would have to be in and because it's the kind of thing when people say yeah this happens it'll be bad most of the time that doesn't happen but it's happening and it's bad
Shane Harris covers national security for The Post. The print version of the story was also reported by Francis Steed Sellers. You can find a link to that story at postreports.com. As the outbreak continues to spread, other hospitals are also struggling to keep up with the sheer volume of COVID patients. And of course, not every medical facility is as well-funded or well-equipped as Mount Sinai. That's especially true when it comes to PPEs, or personal protective equipment. Kummel Kalsi is an emergency room doctor who's experienced this. He works at several hospitals and clinics in New York and New Jersey. One of the places I work at has an abundant supply of PPE, um, and it's great. You know, we put on our N95 masks and we take care of the patients. And really, we're wearing those masks all day. And then one of the other places I work at, they don't have as much PPE. We see a lot of nurses and doctors bringing in their own stuff. And up until a little while ago, the administration had actually frowned upon that. They were feeling that it was scaring patients. Hmm. So, you know, never mind that it's scaring the doctors and nurses. Uh, You know, we don't want to get uh, infected. It also doesn't help the fact that the CDC said that we should wear bandanas when we don't have anything else. I mean, it's just sort of insulting and and ridiculous. And I see all these national efforts with people like stitching cloth face masks and stuff. And it's, it's, it's a nice effort, but it doesn't help us. You know, those are not the types of masks that we need. I'm not angry, but I, I'm just disappointed that we live in such an amazing country. You know, we're the most advanced country in the world, and yet some of my colleagues are having to wear garbage bags instead of gowns because they don't have those available. I think that's a shame. I think it's very shameful that we're put into this situation. And it's starting to become clear that these shortages in equipment can have consequences. Three days ago, I went for a run. And normally I can do eight miles without an issue. And I I did three miles and I was I was winded. And so I said, huh, that's weird. And then the next morning I woke up and I had body aches and fever, headache. and I felt like crap. So... (laughs) And what was going through your head? Uh, I was thinking, yeah, I, I probably got it. You know, we, we see so many of these patients. It was really just a matter of time. Is it confirmed or? Well, they did the test, I think, what was it two, two days ago? Mm-hmm. And it takes five to seven days to get the results. And so you're, you're just at home now and? Yeah, just self-isolating at home. Yeah. It's sort of like a, like a bad flu. And yesterday it was really bad feeling short of breath, but better today. When you woke up that morning and you realized like, yeah, I probably have this. What was your reaction? Like, how were you feeling? Well, I mean, I'm in, I'm in pretty good shape and I don't have any comorbidities. You know, I'm not a diabetic. I don't have any underlying lung disease. I don't smoke. So I, I figured I had a pretty good chance of fighting this all. But, you know, it does cause some anxiety, too, because we've also seen people 
less than the age of 40 actually get placed on a ventilator for respiratory failure. And a lot of those folks never had any uh, other comorbid conditions. So there's a lot more to this that we don't understand. Apparently in the first week, you may experience mild symptoms. And then in the second week, that's when the hypoxia and respiratory failure sets in. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of unknowns. And all those unknowns are what makes it so scary for health workers around the country who are facing the prospect of getting exposed to the virus. There are all these photos being circulated of emergency room physicians and nurses, you know, posting photos of their bruised faces after these long, grueling shifts in whatever masks they are able to find. Or there are these tweets that have gone viral from emergency room doctors just outlining their day and and the sort of war zone that they're up against in their emergency departments. And while physicians, you know, they do talk about their commitment to their patients never changing, that they went into this profession to save lives and to help people, this really is the first time that many of them are facing the reality that now that commitment involves putting themselves in direct risk too because of the size and, and enormity of what our country is facing right now. My name is Rachel Siegel, and I'm a business reporter at The Washington Post. Right now, millions of Americans are staying home to limit their own exposure, to limit the exposure of their loved ones. But as more and more people get sick all over the country, that means that healthcare workers are essentially marching to the front lines of this crisis. That includes emergency room doctors or other physicians who have been redeployed to help with critical care. And they are the ones who are essentially putting themselves most at risk in order to save patients. And that means that many physicians are having to consider plans if anything were to happen to them. They're updating their wills. They're making funeral arrangements. They're mapping out who would care for their children because they know that just as their patients are very ill and perhaps facing death, that could be something that happens to them too. So when you talked with doctors about what they were experiencing right now, what did they tell you? So my name is Andrea Austin. I'm an emergency physician and I work at LA County USC Hospital in Los Angeles. One of the most mind-boggling details that I got from Andrea Austin, who is an emergency room doctor in Los Angeles County, she talked about how three years ago she was deployed to Iraq as part of a shock and trauma team. And when she was on the C-130 flying into Iraq at the beginning of her deployment, she said that that was really the first time she ever considered her own mortality and really realized just how risky her deployment was. What I noticed about six weeks ago is as I was seeing the pictures come out of China and seeing the physicians that have died in China, it really struck me that this was likely a more serious risk than I had faced in Iraq. And now that she is bracing for this spike in cases that we're expecting over the next couple of weeks, and as she knows that there isn't going to be enough PPE to keep her safe, she actually told me that she's more afraid of dying now than when she was when she was deploying to Iraq. I know I'm a young person. I've been blessed with great health. I do not suffer from any immunocompromised conditions, which I cannot say for all of my colleagues, but I am worried. 
One other example is I talked to Dr. Michelle Au, who's an anesthesiologist in Atlanta, and her husband is a surgeon. So they have this double risk in their own household, and they're trying to take some basic precautions so that, you know, Dr. Au washes her clothes and takes a shower when she leaves the hospital and then repeats the cycle when she comes home. I'd say two and a half or three weeks ago, I started sleeping in the basement. The reason I started doing that is just in case there was something that I was bringing home that I wanted to minimize the infectivity in that way. I also wanted to have an area that if I did need to fully quarantine, that it would be easy to transition over into that. My spouse and I had many conversations about how best to keep the family safe. I'm not totally sure that what we're doing is enough. Then again, they don't know who would care for their children if something happened to either of them or their living will and power of attorney they're revisiting. And they actually realized that in the the lineup of people that they had written down once they started having children, some of them are now in their 70s. Another is an anesthesiologist. I think this has given us uh, this perspective that we could really need to use these people and this paperwork in our will because we might not be around to take care of our kids. So we added a fourth layer of someone who is out of the line of fire that we felt was the safest possible person we could pick, who's my best friend from high school, and he's a law professor. So we figured we needed a safe bet as a backstop in case it got to the point that um, our first three were uh, affected by the virus. It's not a line of thinking I ever thought I would have to get to, but here we are. So I didn't go into a lot of details about what I would want if I was on a ventilator or all the different details about different pathways that could happen medically. Because to be quite frank with you, between my two good friends, one a physician, one a nurse practitioner, I know they know what I would want. So I don't need to lay out layers of medical detail for them. It was more important that my husband know that these are the two people that I want him to talk to, because quite frankly, I have a lot of friends. I have a lot of physician friends, and I'm sure there were many people that would want to give him advice. Our older son is 14. He's in high school. But we have also started to bring him in into some of the planning because I think he is old enough that if something happens to one or both of us, that he can take some role in taking care of some of the details um, that need to be wrapped up if something happens to his parents. It's not something you want to put on him. A 14-year-old is still a child. But he's very mature, and we've given him some select access to certain passwords and accounts and things like that in case he needs to help out. And then the other thing, and it may sound a little silly or vain, uh, but I, I wanted to write down a few things that I would want at my funeral because my husband, I love him dearly, but he's not much of a music person. And I know he would struggle with the music. And it was important to me that there was some good good songs. Where are those songs? So the first song is Somewhere Over the Rainbow, the modern version with the ukulele. The second song would be used if there was a slideshow, and it's Megan Trainer's Badass Woman, which just makes me laugh, and I would want people to laugh. And then the last one is uh, Stevie Wonder's Ave Maria, which is a beautiful song to me, a beautiful message, and I just really enjoy that version. Rachel Siegel is a business reporter at The Post. That's it for Post Reports. 
thanks for listening. For everybody, and particularly for those who are doctors, nurses, medical professionals, or anyone working in a hospital right now, stay safe and be well. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.